Welcome to the Continued Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Fawn Carson, and I'm Senior Managing Editor at OccupationalTherapy.com. Today's podcast features our host, Dr. Dennis Cleary, discussing what's culture got to do with it, OT practice with pediatric clients from Diverse Communities podcast, with our guest, Dr. Christina Reyes. Thanks for listening. Well, welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us. I'm really delighted today to be joined by Christina Reyes-Smith. Christina is an associate professor at the Medical University of South Carolina, and um, thanks so much for being here, Christina. If you want to just tell us a little bit our topic, what's culture got to do with it, OT practice with pediatric clients from diverse communities. Could you just tell us a little bit about your background and kind of what brings you to uh, our podcast today? Absolutely. I am so excited to be here and I appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk about this very important topic related to not only our pediatric clients, but really across the lifespan. And uh, so I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, I still live in this area. I, my family's originally from Puerto Rico, but my father was in the Navy. We come from a long line of veterans. And so we ended up here in this area when I was three years old. And so I grew up um, in a very diverse military community as a young child during my formative years. And uh, later on, moved to an area that was was significantly less inclusive, I'll say. And so um, some of that has been a little bit of the underlying foundation for the work that I do now in the diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice space um, in academia and, and throughout uh, clinical practice, professionally. Um, this has included... Uh, scholarship. I've been very fortunate to have some um, presentations, publications over the years uh, around this topic. And I also had a private practice for eight and a half years um, called Vita Vela Services, which uh, closed in, in November of 2020 after eight and a half years. Our primary purpose as an organization was to help promote the needs of underserved communities and to provide access to quality care for those communities, particularly with language barriers, with uh, lower income, and and or also uh, rural communities too. And so those experiences, as well as others, as a student, as a clinician at a rural community hospital, um, doing some program development in the past, uh, and some nonprofit work have really um, helped to form who I am today as uh, an individual. Wonderful. And so um, you're a um, you have some background in and fo- forming Cotad. Could you tell us a little bit about what Cotad is and sort of what led you to become involved in Cotad? Absolutely. So I was very fortunate to be a participant in the AOTA Emerging Leaders Program back in 2012. And it was during that time that I met some really extraordinary people who were very close friends uh, to this day. And we discovered that we were from all over the United States and we had similar passion, even though we had very diverse backgrounds, culturally, geographically, uh, practice area wise. And so we decided that if we were to provide a presentation about how we entered into the profession, that this could be helpful as um, 
a source of insight for uh, the, the diverse workforce of the Centennial Vision, which was in 2017. So we conducted the presentation through AOTA and uh, it went really well. <laughs> we discovered that we loved working together. We were encouraged at the end of our presentation by um, Dr. Janice Burke, who is a Slagle lecturer, recently retired uh, dean of uh, Thomas Jefferson University. Um, she encouraged us to continue with the work. And so we really took that to heart. And a few months later, we decided on a formal name for the organization. And actually, the name changed uh, once or twice along that path. And um, Dr. Catherine Hoyt uh, was our founding chair, spearheading that initiative with the formation of the organization. And so um, now it's a national 501c3 nonprofit. We have uh, an incredible new chair, Dr. Rame Anvirizade, who is also serving as vice president of AOTA at this time. And uh, there are incredible student chapters that have grown all over the country. The last I heard we had, there were over 50 of them nationwide, and that's been some time. So um, between the student chapters, there's a mentorship program. We have had a faculty initiative called COTAD Ed for about four or five years now with regular events at the Education Summit and at the National Conference. We also have had uh, different initiatives with AOTA and MDI. We've had a lot of motions for the Representative Assembly over the years as well, helping to try to move forward um, DEI and J in through um, the ethics advisories that are distributed through educational curriculum resources, through the um, practice uh, official documents that are um, available. And so it's it's really been varied over the last eight years of the organization um, about what the group has been able to accomplish. And I have taken a step back from COTAD. I'm still involved more peripherally, um, but now that I'm on the board of directors of the AOTA, I've been trying to really devote my efforts uh, into um, making contributions there and, and supporting uh, the other leadership as best I can. Gotcha. And what does COTAD stand for? I guess we should have started there. Oh, yeah. It's the Coalition of Occupational Therapy Advocates for Diversity. And so their goals would be? Uh, so our initiatives were really centered around promoting the diverse workforce of the Centennial Vision. And so that took many different shapes and forms. We've had a lot of engagement with students, with faculty as well. And we've also been able to give presentations on strategic planning initiatives. There was a workshop several years ago on the AOTA Education Summit um, as a part of that in Louisville, Kentucky, where we um, some of us provided a two-day workshop for academic programs. We also have presented on panels for the Academic Leadership Council several times over the years. The Academic Education SIS um, group hosted a holistic admissions panel. Uh, I believe it was 2021, early 2021, where we talked about holistic admissions and what that entails and how it's critical for um, moving towards the diverse workforce that we have said that, that we wanted in the Centennial Vision. And now with Vision 2025, 
really being applicable in providing occupational therapy for all people, populations, and communities. Um, we have the five uh, pillars through Vision 2025, which include accessibility, diversity, equity, and inclusion, leadership, collaboration, et cetera. Wonderful. And just so for folks that don't, don't know holistic admissions, and I think as occupational therapists, we all sort of have always believed in that is how do we, you know, that it's not just strict GPA as being, you know, back when I was uh, admitted to school somehow, um, it really was really looking at, at, at GPA um, in terms of admissions, and, and that was kind of it. Um, and so holistic admissions really is about looking at an entire person and you know how does they uh, how do their their traits and their background um, how does that potentially you know add uh, diversity to a class you know so that hopefully everyone within that that cohort that's moving through together as most OT programs do you know benefits from having people from lots of different backgrounds and experiences and, and different ways of thinking. So so would you say that COTAD sort of helped to influence your decision or your your beliefs in diversity, equity, inclusion um, influenced your decision to run for the board of directors or um, you're, you know, just obviously also passionate about the profession uh, in terms of that? How, how does that, how do those uh, interact with each other, would you say? Finally, earning CEUs is as easy and stress-free as listening to your favorite podcasts. Just head over to OccupationalTherapy.com and sign up to start earning the CEUs you need online. You'll get unlimited access to hundreds of courses, including live webinars, on-demand videos, and text courses, and the audio courses you love for just $99 per year. And if you sign up today, you'll get 13 months of unlimited CEU access for the price of 12. This is an exclusive offer for our listeners, so don't wait. Go to OccupationalTherapy.com and use promo code PODCAST and get 13 months for just $99. Join thousands of your colleagues who are already earning their CEUs online with OccupationalTherapy.com, an AOTA-approved provider of continuing education and an NBCOT professional development provider. And don't forget to use promo code PODCAST at checkout to get your free bonus month. Once again, that's OccupationalTherapy.com, promo code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to get started today. I would say that, that yes, um, it was a big part of it. And with the energy, the, um, the support, the engagement around COTAD and the many initiatives, uh, it really has catalyzed some incredible changes in our profession, which I think have been very timely. Um, we've been in transitions with our country pretty much since the start. And recently those um, came more to the forefront of social awareness. And so I feel like a lot of the work that we had done um, through COTAD and, and through related initiatives, we were in a better place to be able to, over the past couple of years, move forward in some different areas. Um, but I've, I've been involved in uh, other leadership as well at our state association uh, for several years. I also had the opportunity to serve on the representative assembly for two terms. Um, there was a break in between them, but uh, through the AOTA. And so those experiences, as well as the Emerging Leaders Program and the um, the lessons learned, the relationships from that, the mentors, um, all of it has really uh, 
it all came together and I uh, came to the point where I felt it was time to run. Um, I was the first uh, person of color on the board of directors in a very, very long time. And um, now we're seeing everywhere representation matters, representation matters. And that's something I strongly believe in, but I also feel compelled that I can't complain about things unless I'm willing to do something about it and be a part of the positive change. And so um, the timing felt right. And I did not expect to be elected to the board of directors the first time that I ran. So I went into it thinking this is the first time that I'm going to run and we'll see how it goes. And um, so here I am, we're two years into it. And uh, it's it's been um, very exciting. It's been a very tumultuous time uh, for our profession, for our society as well. And so, um, being in a in a position uh, to try to help move things forward has been um, very humbling, uh, very um, rewarding as well. Great. And so. Could you, and I, I, we're going to be talking about pediatrics, but I think we're, we're doing a lead up uh, to this as well. Um, so what's AOTA, AOTA been doing to try to become a more inclusive organization? Certainly in the last several years, it seems to um, be much more of an emphasis of what um, leadership is, is doing related to that. Yeah, so there have been a wide variety of initiatives. Um, most recently, we had a new membership rollout to try to make um, membership more accessible for students, practitioners across different price points dependent on the needs of the member. Um, there is a new AOTA Diverse Leaders Program that is being supported by a sponsor. And so that's being launched this year as well. There's been some focus on um, re revitalizing some of the scholarships that AOTA offers and, and that relationship. I think people have seen throughout uh, conference registrations and, and some of the um, media that's come out. Uh, there have also been some responses to some of the societal uh, societal occurrences that we've had, <laughs> sure, turmoil over the past couple of years. And so AOTA has tried to be uh, very responsive to that in a way that is um, nonpartisan, constructive, sensitive. These are not easy topics that we are dealing with as a nation, as a world. And so um, it has to be carefully uh carefully measured measured yes thank you so um but along with that also recognizing that saying nothing also sends a message and so there have been some some uh difficult conversations that we've had uh, about some of those kinds of things and um finding the place where, where we do agree as a profession and really relying on our code of ethics, on our uh, core values as a profession to really guide us has been really important uh, as well as Vision 2025 and the priorities. So I think we, you know, we, we all agree um, that trying to increase diversity uh, within the profession certainly um, makes us uh, a stronger profession, but also helps us meet sort of the underlying needs of um, the communities that we serve. So 
if you want to talk a little bit about um, those needs and um, specifically around occupations and culture and how what is that connection between occupations and culture when we're looking at, um, at, at people from various different communities. Absolutely. So if you look at our OT practice framework, the word culture or cultural appears over 40 times. So to me, that says this is something that we should be paying attention to as occupational therapy practitioners and not in a cursory sort of way, but in a this is fundamental to who we are as occupational beings. So this morning, for example, uh, what we ate what we wore, where we slept, if we exercised, if we went to work or school, how we got to work or school. All of these various areas, our habits, our routines, our patterns of behavior have cultural roots. They have cultural context. They have value. They have beliefs. They have cultural norms that um, are impacted uh, by the environment both socially, physically, but also with our internal factors as well. And so as occupational therapy practitioners, I think it's important to stop and really reflect on how am I doing with honoring this and really uh, being aware and sensitive to the clients that I interact with on a daily basis. And when we talk about pediatric clients, that of course uh, encompasses the caregivers, the family siblings potentially, as well as your primary patient, and really considering how those relationships and those cultural aspects um, impact daily occupation, performance, participation. Yeah, especially as occupational therapists in terms of a profession, I think we have more of an obligation really than, than maybe other professions do because, you know, occupations are so ingrained, whereas uh, not to, we love our physical therapy friends, but um, there's, there might be some cultural context to exercise or walking, or I guess they do other things other than that, but um, that what we do is just so rooted in the culture and for our, our pediatric clients and the families um, that they are raised in. Um, it's just so important. Um, could you just talk a little bit about your own background and maybe how um, your your background influences how you how you practice with with kids and with families, and um, I guess we'll stop there and just let you answer that. Sure. So uh, I grew up. My parents both grew up in Puerto Rico, and when we moved here, I remember in elementary school, I would have to um, review the the notes that my mother would send to school. I would edit them for grammar, punctuation. She had been to school in the States up until about the third grade, and then the rest was in Puerto Rico. And so from a literacy standpoint early on, I remember being very aware and self-conscious about that. And so also uh, there are times that um, I remember um, helping my mother with various tasks and it was a low, lower income family. Um, my parents had split up when I was in the sixth grade and she remarried a year or so later. 
and I had younger sisters who were born when I was in the eighth grade. And so they were twins and they were the light of my life. And now that I have my own children, they are no longer the light of my life, but still <laughs> love them very much. And so that really um, shaped a lot of my formative years. And uh, with my family, there were um, challenges on my my father's side. He had several different wives and it was very tumultuous time uh, for us and, and as a as a young person, um, there were a lot of uh, scars that I won't go into, and it wasn't until really adulthood that I was able to work through some of that and move past it. And um, so, that, uh, I have I think a lot about mental health and well-being for our clients and um, trauma and the cumulative effects of trauma and how that impacts the person that sits before us today and who they are, what's important to them, how we interact, communicate uh, with them, and and also kind of honor that lived experience uh, in addition to the outcomes that they wish to seek based on this life trajectory. And so uh, I, I also had a lot of uh, loved ones that passed away for various reasons. Uh, when I was a kid, my favorite favorite babysitter had leukemia and she um, passed at the age of 19. And um, a guy that I had a crush on um, uh, ended his own life um, when he was 14 years old uh, up in New York. And so just these different kinds of um, life experiences, I think, have made me more sensitive to the struggle that others are having for various reasons. And um, so with occupational therapy, I didn't hear about it until uh, after I had graduated from college and I was volunteering at a children's hospital where a little girl that I was uh, volunteering to, to play with in their huge atrium uh, as a child life volunteer wanted nothing to do with me. She just wanted to see her occupational therapist. And it really hurt my feelings at the time, but it also piqued my curiosity. What is this OT thing? And everything I found sounded too good to be true, that it was a well-respected profession with great opportunities and a variety of settings across the lifespan with um, bringing in problem solving, compassion, science, arts. And uh, here we are 20 years later, and my license plate is I Love OT. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. So, yeah. So I think about that little girl a lot. And I, I also think about, I do remember um, a career finder survey that I took. I think it was in the seventh grade, told me that I would make a good mortician. Yeah, so <laughs> when it fields. comes to, yeah, slightly different, slightly yeah. different. When it comes to uh, admissions, recruitment, diversity in the workforce, I reflect on that a lot as well. And if people have not heard of occupational therapy, there are not there are not many things that we can count on in this world, but if they have not heard of occupational therapy, they will not choose occupational therapy as a profession 100% of the time. So that's really driven me in my work in admissions and um, 
with uh, the holistic admissions in particular. And um, I just wanted to add to holistic admissions that it's also about thinking about the outcomes. What are we doing as academic programs and as a profession with our institutional missions, our goals? We say that we are community oriented. We say that we're meeting these needs of our communities, but our communities are very diverse. And so if we're not generating practitioners that are responsive to the diverse needs of our communities, we're really hampered by the benefits that we're able to offer. And so that's where we consider those outcomes. And we have to, <clears throat> excuse me, and we have to take it back to our uh, admissions because we are the gatekeepers into the profession. And we need to acknowledge that. We need to take a hard look at what uh, outcomes we desire in our students and in our future professionals and colleagues as well. And really look at the rules that have been set up, reevaluate what is the kind of student, what qualities, what characteristics are we looking for? Uh, and, and if we're not getting those students, we need to self-evaluate. Do we need to widen our applicant pool? Do we need to make adjustments to our criteria for admissions? Um, in our program, we conduct our interviews. And there's so much to people, so much more than what you see on paper. And we can't imagine uh, hiring a faculty member without having a rigorous interview process. But we are bringing people into the profession all the time and not necessarily making time for that. So, and there can be issues with interviews too. There are some, some things to watch out for. But um, yeah, does that answer your question? It, it does. So I, I think especially when you think about your own background, when you're, when you're treating a, a, a young person, when you, you know, meet the family, um, the caregiver, how, how does that, just do you, you know, if someone comes from uh, a, a Puerto Rican background or a Hispanic background, do you feel like you have more street credibility with them? I don't even know if that's the right term, but is there, is it an easier connection? Uh, do, do families maybe feel more comfortable um, because, and, and I don't even know, are you, are you fluent in Spanish or no? Yeah, so that's a great question. I am now fluent in Spanish, but when I first started the company, I was not. Uh, I had a passion for the Hispanic Latino community and also rural communities, lower income families in general. So for me, uh, it, it was not always easy and it was not always instant uh, street cred or trust or rapport. Um, and some of that I think goes back to uh, educational levels, socioeconomic levels, but even country of origin, um, immigration status, many of these different factors, and, and also what we refer to as social determinants of health um, impact our clients very uniquely. So I have to work hard um, with others, and, and that goes back to um, intersectionality and understanding that we're not all defined by this one factor or that factor, but we're really, we have many different factors that make up our identities as individuals. And sometimes we have commonalities with others and we can refer to that as these cultural norms or cultural patterns. Um, but then 
other times we we have a separate identity. My family has a, a separate identity of um, being service oriented, compassionate, um, trying to have kind words with each other, and uh, those those different aspects as well. So, in terms of uh, kind of making that connection with families. Can you think about um, what can we do to help be better connected to folks from diverse backgrounds? And, and I think, you know, even the, you know, using the term diversity in some way, shape or form, you know, all of us come from our own, as occupational therapists, we come from our own backgrounds. So, you know, um, as a white male, uh, I'm a, a minority within the profession. Uh, so we each come from, you know, the context that, that we, that we come from. So how do you have some tips on ways that we can make maybe families and the kids that, that we're serving feel welcome, you know, when they're entering into our, our therapy setting? Absolutely. So we first really have to start with cultural humility. And this is the concepts of saying, I don't know everything about everything. Uh, and I, this is, I am learning alongside. Yes, I am a professional. I have an academic degree in a particular area, I have some expertise, but also this patient, this client, they are experts of their lived experience. And it's a partnership for us to move forward towards their goals. I need to approach it with humility. Uh, and so when we talk about the medical model, that is sometimes contrary, where the medical model is more authoritarian, uh, more commanding of respect. Cultural humility says, well, I bring something to the table, but also the client brings something valuable, valid, and important to the table as well. And there's some really great work out there um, by uh, Drs. Garcia and Turvalone, um, some videos, other resources, and there's been a big push for this idea of cultural humility. So historically, the term cultural competence has been more widely utilized. And from what I've been able to gather, it was originally more at an organizational level about how do we build competence as an organization through the structures that are um, available uh, across a continuum from being culturally destructive to being culturally proficient. And uh, there's some really great literature around that as well. One of the challenges with cultural competence is that where is the ending point that people are working towards? Because you can't be completely culturally proficient in every culture all the time in every setting. Um, I think it's helpful for having dialogue around these concepts and, and having different metrics towards this idea of building competence. Um, but uh, some of the other terms that are being more widely used now are um, culturally relevant, culturally responsive, culturally aware, culturally sensitive. Um, so going back to the literature, when people are trying to look at evidence-based practice and what it means, sometimes there's not uniformity of terminology. And so that can be a challenge for people uh, when they're trying to build, build their uh, skill set and their awareness. So in, in terms of being uh, culturally humble, so even you, you had your own clinic, um, what were the types of things that you did, just even thinking about the physical environment, that you did to try to make 
people feel welcome uh, from all different types of backgrounds? Yeah, that's a great question. So for our clinic, we wanted it to be a magical experience for anyone who walked through the doors. So we had these huge oversized uh, stuffed animals all over the place. We had the tiger, the gator, the chimpanzee, loggerhead sea turtle. So very inviting. We also had um, a mural uh, of an outdoor space and we had a painter come and install a roof above the mural. So when you walked into the clinic, it looked like you were outside. And we had a sunshine lighting up in the corner, different kites uh, up on the wall, butterflies, grass on the wall, just through wall decals. And um, we had our uh, swing sets, our board games, art supplies. And we were very lucky, there's a local toy store that um, w- was created by an OT. And so her, wow. I won't name them. It's my right dream now. job. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we were able to work with her to um, really just get some fun, engaging toys into the clinic. And so creating that space that was um, playful and inviting versus some of the more sterile environments that I've seen in the past, that was really important to me. We also had a fairy door in the clinic that would move around. And so the kids could write notes for the fairies and they could, the fairy would leave little surprises for them from time to time. Uh, So that was really fun. We had an outdoor space where we could go and the kids could get some real sunshine and um, play outside with uh, water, different um, sand, sensory toys. Um, So I think we need to take a look at the spaces and uh, as we're trying to build trust and rapport, um, particularly when there's a language barrier, that environment really matters. Having also staff that were bilingual was really important to us. So our receptionist was bilingual and she wasn't fully proficient in Spanish, but she had enough to welcome families, to show them where the restroom was. Um, And from an inclusion standpoint, making sure that the restroom was uh, wheelchair accessible was important, that our parking lot was safe for um, our kids that maybe trying to escape and just things like that um, were really important as well. And then uh, having signs uh, in Spanish because 25% of our clients were Spanish speaking uh, was important. So those were some of the the physical and social environment um, aspects of the clinic that, that we tried to implement. And a lot of that was also based on the national class standards for culturally and linguistically appropriate services. Um, this is a, um, a document with 15 different recommendations from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of Minority Health, where four out of the 15 are related to language access. And it talks about signage. It talks about having uh, interpreters, uh, quality of interpreters, at, at, for us at multiple levels, uh, to be able to provide that access to care. Could you talk a little bit about working with interpreters when you're working with a, a child and the, the, the family and at what point um, do people have the right to interpreters versus, um, and especially in a smaller clinic maybe such as yourself, how do you, how do you sort of manage that so that um, 
the child is getting the best services and the family understands, you know, what it is that, that you're doing with their child and, and what maybe they, you're asking them to do when they're away from the clinic. Yeah, absolutely. So what we don't want is a six-year-old that's interpreting for mom or dad, right? Um, but at the same time, we get into this situation ethically where it's no services or, uh, or working with what we have. And so as providers individually and organization-wise, we do have uh, due diligence that's required to have accessibility in some way for interpreters and language access, particularly when we're dealing with federal funding through Medicaid, through Medicare. And so many of the states are now having different policies in place for language access where clinics have to, and providers have to state what their language access plan is, what the resources are. Uh, there are phone language lines that are available for language access for a fee. There are um, there video interpretation available. It's a little more pricey, but uh, some of the larger hospital systems are using that more widely now. And for us, it was um, through our interview process looking for provi clinical providers and administrative staff who um, maybe were not completely fluent in uh, Spanish, but had enough to have some of the, the basic kind of greeting people, showing them around kinds of things, uh, and then having access to those more medically trained interpreters for on an, uh, an as-needed basis to be able to interact with them um, when the language was not working out. So we uh, did provide different trainings for our providers in Spanish around terminology for uh, therapy practice and um, but but also from that cultural humility standpoint, we were looking for people who had experience uh, working with diverse and underserved communities and um, had had that passion as well. So we also had a lot of events that we would host uh, through the company that were more social in nature and inclusive, and we would have bilingual activities available as well. There were some that we would specifically host, and, and it's this Alegria network that we had developed uh, with a local pediatrician, a local special education school teacher, and a speech therapist, where we would host dance-based programs, or uh, we partnered with the local children's museum one year. We partnered with a local fun park several years. That was very popular. And our students could get involved and host um, uh, educational sessions on stress management, for example, or oral health. And um, we had a lot of fun uh, with that uh, really up until COVID hit. And so we're still trying to figure out how do we bring that back um, in the future. But yeah, so those are some of the strategies that we used. There was an article that was published through the World Federation of Occupational Therapy Bulletin Journal around culturally competent case studies. This was, I believe, 2018. And so uh, our company was featured as a part of those case studies talking about some of the strategies for language access that we had implemented. And when it comes to success, we really retained uh, those families from that 25% Spanish speaking for many, many years. And so that was an important measure of success for me, but it certainly was not um, 
it, it took a village. It took partnerships with the pediatricians, with social workers, with um, other individuals in the community that were supporting us to that aim to really be successful with that. And the name of that again was Alegria? Alegria, Alegria. yes, means joyfulness. Wonderful. So I said that intentionally. I, I think another huge responsibility that we have is to, at the very, very, very minimal, to get folks' names correct and to get the pronunciation of their name correct. I think, you know, that's um, kind of a, a minimum show of cultural humility is to not say, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm from a different culture, so I shouldn't be expected to understand how you pronounce your name. And obviously some, some folks naturally will say, you know, call me Sam or whatever the, the name might be, but just, you know, how respected someone feels if you go out of your way, which it really shouldn't be out of your way, to be able to pronounce their name correctly. Absolutely. It's important to acknowledge that. And if someone doesn't know, it's okay to ask. People, uh, yeah, absolutely. people seem to... That's the humility part. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> people seem to, to care uh, and recognize if you care. And one of the other really critical aspects is particularly when you're working across language barriers, is being aware of your uh, your nonverbal communication, your body language. Uh, families will really pay attention to that. If you're constantly looking at your watch, they're going to interpret that. If you're grimacing, if your arms are crossed, uh, your tone of voice also. So we need to be very aware of what we're projecting because it may be unintentional. We may just be nervous um, that people will assume whether you want to be there because you care or if you're just collecting a paycheck or not. And the, the we're going to get better outcomes uh, if, if we're able to build that trust and rapport with our clients and really build that client-centered care uh, that we so highly value. Yeah, and it would... I used to live in Columbus, Ohio, and so there was a large, still is a very large Somali community there. And I know a lot of the the different health providers are doing pretty significant outreach to to their employees to make sure they understand sort of the the cultural appropriateness of, of a lot of, like you said, the body language and what hand you use and those sorts of things. And, and you know, I think you're right. Like, it, we sometimes just need to ask those questions and are there kind of some sample questions or or maybe some questions that might be useful um, to really start to understand someone's culture is it appropriate to be sort of blatant to say i'm not familiar with people from your background i want to learn about that could you give me some information or what's how would you recommend approaching that situation yeah so i think about the occupational profile and asking about people's living situations getting a sense of their prior level of function, um, but also what are their goals and really listening to that. I remember um, early on as a pediatric practitioner, I had a Spanish speaking family from um, Guatemala and they had a little girl with Down syndrome. And I tried to educate and tried to educate around fine motor skills and practice and um, different home activities. And the, the concept of independence for that particular culture was very different from what we have embraced in occupational therapy uh, in the U.S. And so for the mother, her role was to care for her child with a disability, 
for the remainder of her life as much as she was able to. And so we talked about how she'll be bigger one day and we want her to be able to dress herself and feed herself. And these are some of the skills to get there. And it wasn't until we talked about Play-Doh making tortillas that mom really engaged in the home program follow-up. And so uh, it, it was something so simple, but for her, that was that meaningful occupation that she valued uh, to, to help to work towards some of those um, underlying skills. I think I found um, when I work with people from different cultures that they, they like to have the shoe on the other foot in some ways, that, that they're the ones that are helping me learn. Uh, in terms of, and, and, you know, we're all proud of the culture, the family that we come from. So it's, a, I think we all enjoy, you know, being able to share that with other people. Um, Absolutely. Uh, so in terms of, um, you know, looking at that interplay between culture and, and occupational engagement, um, you talked about the, the tortillas uh, with the young lady with Down syndrome from Guatemala. Other experiences maybe that you've had around that, that you've um, maybe gotten additional buy-in uh, based on, on, you know, kind of figuring out the occupations that are really important to folks that you're serving? So there was one little guy that comes to mind um, from an inner city African-American family uh, his, uh, he had four brothers and sisters and, or excuse me, four sisters. And his, his mother was doing things on her own. And we worked together for many, many years. The home environment was uh, not really conducive with that many children for him um, to, to be able to really uh, make the kind of progress that we were hoping for. And so that was a big part why we created the clinic in the first place was to have a safe space where uh, he and other, other kids could go. And so um, with his mother, uh, I, I had the, uh, the opportunity to complete level two field work at the National Rehabilitation Hospital in Washington, D.C. And they were very customer service oriented and really embraced this idea of healthcare services, service delivery. And I have a background in hospitality, so that really resonated with me. And they talked about taking five minutes at the start of care and at the end of care to check in with the patient and find out how things are going um, at the beginning in particular. And then at the end, to take that time to explain what you did during the session, give them some ideas for what they can try outside of the, the therapy hour and uh, and give that time have that time for questions as well and so I've tried to really um, embrace that as a practitioner so I remember going through that with her and and one of her priorities was that um, he was having conflict with his sisters and he was much bigger than they were and so that was a problem so we integrated some goals to work towards that of just the the self-regulation and um, uh, being able to interact more positively with the little sisters and, and provided some ideas around that. And at times we had the sisters come and be a part of the therapy sessions in the clinic as well, which I love incorporating siblings whenever possible. They're some of the best allies in the therapy process. Uh, so that's, that's one other example that really comes to mind. I also think a lot about health literacy and how 
Um, often our role can be connecting our clients with resources in the community that they may not have been aware of. And so um, it might be through the things, simple, simple things like the local library um, or maybe food banks or uh, help primary uh, healthcare services for adults in particular. Um, with pediatric clients, if they're born in the United States, they're eligible for Social Security, for um, Medicaid, insurance, um, but often the parents, if they were not born in the United States, are not eligible for that. And especially if they are undocumented, there may be trust issues, fear, and so there may be some preventable uh, situations that with the right care can be um, addressed appropriately and another family uh, comes to mind with that where there was diabetes in the family and the mother ended up um, losing her vision later because it wasn't managed and um, having two children with special needs was very uh, that was very difficult for her her husband um, as well and so they they were still getting things figured out, um, but making do as they could uh, at that time. So um, when it comes to health literacy and understanding the healthcare system, I actually think about um, a trip that I took after college to France. And in Provence, the south of France, I was staying with um, a, a group from my college. Uh, on a farm out in the countryside and the farm had a lot of animals there was an ostrich which that turns out they're very aggressive did not know that until then uh, <laughs> and they had um, warthogs and dogs and all kinds of animals um, so I was taking my allergy medicine but when the allergy medicine wore off I had one of the worst asthma attacks of my life and it was after 10 o'clock, by the time I finally told my instructor, the closest hospital was two and a half hours away, uh, and I spoke very little French, uh, but they had a family doctor that made house calls, and so he came, gave me a shot of something, I still don't know what it is, uh, he gave me a prescription for a drug that was not FDA approved yet in the United States, but it was approved in France, and I was able to get that filled the next morning. Um, my instructor uh, for the course was the only, the art history professor was the only one, she was the only one who uh, spoke any French and English, and, but not medical French, uh, or English for that matter, and so she was the one who was the interpreter. And I remember um, the vulnerability, the fear that went along with that experience very, very clearly, uh, and the, not having the understanding of the healthcare system there as well when I think about health literacy. So that's one of those experiences that has also framed a lot of the work that I've done in this space as well. And so when our clients come in, taking that time to explain to them about Medicaid has to be re renewed every year and you have to follow up on it or your child may not be eligible for these ongoing services 
and also in our state they're requiring home program compliance and so uh, it has to be documented percentage-wise every three months so explaining that to families that we have to make sure that we're we're meeting you where you are and I think the the onus is on us as the practitioner as the provider to find that happy space in collaboration with the family of what are the baby steps that they can do that will be manageable for them and there's good research evidence to show that integrating into family routines can be a very helpful approach uh, for that. Yeah, well, you just think of the millions of people in the United States that are kind of like you were in France that, you know, may not be um, proficient in English, but, you know, could need health care at any given moment. And, um, you know, we, I think we are have done better than we used to in terms of being accessible to people that have language barriers, but obviously still have a, a long way to go. Um, and especially in pediatrics, assessments are a large part of what we do uh, to qualify uh, kids for services, as you said, uh, that, um, you know, that the, the government and insurance payers certainly have requirements so that folks are, or so that kids are eligible for, for occupational therapy. Can you talk a little bit about language differences in some of our standardized assessments and how do you navigate that? You know, maybe if, uh, if a, a child or a, you know, if it's a, a parent report and the parent maybe isn't proficient in English or how do you, how do you manage that? Yeah, great question. So fortunately, there are some assessments that are available in Spanish and English now. Um, the PD-CAT is one that we used quite a bit. It's the computerized version of the Pediatric Evaluation of Disability Inventory. And so with that, you can provide a Spanish version of the questionnaire to the families. You can email it to them if they have email or you, I would frequently bring it up on my computer. We would go through it together as more of an interview. So um, that's one example of a tool. Sensory Profile, the SPM2, also has Spanish versions available, and so that can be very handy. So when you get into um, assessments like the Peabody, for example, there are some activities on there, cutting with scissors, for example, where some families have never let their child come near scissors. They may not even have scissors in the house. So sometimes there might be an unfair disadvantage because of some of those kind of cultural or, or value kinds of factors. Um, also, in some uh, cultures, the floor is considered to be very dirty with germs. And so the idea of tummy time can be a struggle. Uh, because parents don't want to put their infants or toddlers on the floor. And so um, talking about using blankets, using towels, whatever they're comfortable with to help build those skills uh, can be very important. And so with the assessment, with the occupational profile, um, having a Spanish version of that available can be very helpful. Working with an interpreter, um, the higher the level of the interpreter, the better. There's a national certification available, but it's difficult to find interpreters uh, who have that level. And so it's, it, it's an ethical call about the um, level that is able to be used or not. And I look to our public schools quite a bit because they have different levels of interpreters that they provide. And um, and again, it goes back to that access to care piece. If we're not able to provide adequate language access, then that's, that's a problem. So figuring out um, what those ways are to, to make it happen is, is really important. 
and sometimes people will use their apps. Um, I love the Say Hi app. It's the best 99 cents I've ever spent, I would say. Uh, it, you speak to the phone and it speaks back to you in the other language and you can see it there as well. Um, but that will only get you so far. And so having um, those interpreters available um, by phone and some of the insurance companies now have free, free, we'll say, interpreters available um, for families. And so that can be very, very beneficial. One other really key aspect that we um, utilized was working with the pediatrician that did have these um, fully bilingually trained interpreters. If we needed to have heavily medical discussions with the families, we would often be able to set that up for a, a meeting together to be able to make sure that everything was adequate, adequately communicated, especially when we're dealing with children with more involved neurological conditions, quadriplegia, um, stints, and, and things of that nature. Uh, that was a very helpful strategy. Well, this has been a, a wonderful discussion, so I really appreciate your time. Are there, you know, I think I know as the white male in the room, um, have spent a lot of time, especially in the last two years during COVID, um, trying to increase my cultural uh, humility and to, to do a lot of reading and, and watching and listening uh, to different things to try to get a better sense of, of various cultures. Do you have recommendations on, on things people could do to sort of learn more about various cultures and, and how we as occupational therapists really need to be approaching the clients we're serving? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's wonderful to get out into the community. And of course, with COVID, this has made it a little more challenging. But um, through volunteer service roles, that's one important way. Um, but that can sometimes create kind of this savior kind of paradigm or this, I, I hate to refer to power imbalances, but it's it's a thing that we need to be aware of um, that sometimes we may perpetuate if it's all about that service piece. And so I think it's great when people go out into the community, into social events, um, participating in festivals as they're coming back from COVID uh, around different cultural groups. Um, even simple things like going to restaurants and kind of engaging with the staff a little bit, um, but also having friends from different groups that are um, diverse from our own backgrounds is really important. Uh, and being intentional about, you know, from a personal level, um, the people that our children interact with and having those discussions about it. Um, I've had some tough discussions with my kids over the years about our values and, and our family identity and inclusion and what that means to us. And even as related to their birthday parties and who's invited and who's coming over and things like that. Um, so it's important and, and I really appreciate it. And I have to say, I married a white male. I have a lot of respect for, for him, for you, for others as well. And inclusion doesn't just mean it's for people of color or people from one group or this, that, and the other. Inclusion means that everyone feels engaged, valued. And I think we lose that sometimes. Uh, and it's, it's such an important part of um, helping to move forward uh, our profession and, and also recognizing that inclusion be goes beyond race and ethnicity. Um, it also includes sexual and gender minorities, um, gender needs, uh, 
diversity roles, um, socioeconomic disability status, status, disability yeah. status, religious groups, religious minority groups. Um, so we all have something to learn. We all have work to do um, to become more inclusive as individuals, as groups, as organizations, as a population as well. Well, uh, Dr. Christina Reyes-Smith from the Medical University of South Carolina and a member of the American Occupational Therapy Association Board of Directors. So thanks so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Dennis. Take care.